episode 140, Blue Jacket. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an August 24th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. I walk a lonely road, the only one that I have ever known. I don't know where it goes, but it's home to me and I walk alone. In the 1870s, Major James Oakes was stationed at a dusty outpost on the frontier. Just a few years prior, though, he was an up-and-coming general in the American Civil War. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a military jacket worn by this commander of Fort Hayes in western Kansas. Was his time at Fort Hayes a punishment or a badge of honor? Then we go behind the scenes with the museum director of the Kansas Historical Society to examine the highly anticipated Notable 25. The governor tasked a group of historians to pick 25 inspiring Kansans in celebration of our state's sesquicentennial. Find out who made the list and how many historians survived the selection process. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Hindenburg, a massive Nazi airship from the 1930s. But first, Blue Jacket. Everything's alright, check my vital signs, no, I'm still alive, and I walk alone. Good morning, Blair. Good morning, Merle. Today we are discussing a pretty impressive-looking blue military jacket uh, that was worn by the commander of Fort Hayes, Kansas, uh, and it was worn in the 1870s. The jacket, it's kind of long, uh, like it goes down below the hips. Uh, it's fitted and double-breasted. Uh, it's pretty nice-looking. In fact, it's got some really interesting kind of gold thread, huge shoulder boards, mm-hmm. um, and it's got a real prominent like gold cord running across the the front of it um this jacket belonged to colonel james oaks um and he wore it while commanding fort hayes in the 1870s who was oaks and how did this guy end up in hayes oaks is a career army man he goes to west point graduates uh in 1846 which is right the year of the mexican war starting so he goes in the service almost immediately Uh wins two promotions during the mexican war he sees indian war service before the civil war in fact he gets into a fight down in texas where he's severely wounded and with two arrows shot into him including one that punctures his lung and that affects his health for the rest of his life he gets to the Civil War where he doesn't really see service in the field. He's actually sees better service as a recruiter for the duration of the war. Do you think that's related to his That injuries? could be related to his health. It's hard to say because it always did affect him. And he had a nice long life even with it, but he still had some health problems. Today, generals command military installations, not, not colonels. Uh, what did Fort Hayes look like in the 1870s, and what was its function? 
I mean, well, today we think of in military installations, and they're massive and with a lot of people involved. And I'm guessing Fort Hayes in the 1870s probably not the same. It's probably not like Riley or Leavenworth today, but it's probably a little larger than some installations. Oh, really? Because it did have 45 buildings at one time, and it had two functions, really. It was supposed to protect white settlements. It's also a supply depot to some extent. It's supplying other forts in the area, such as Wallace, further, a little further west. So mm-hmm. it is a little bit more important than some places. It may not be Riley. Well, even even then, it might not have been the same importance as Fort Riley or Leavenworth, but it has its own importance. Oaks graduated from West Point, as you said, uh, and he graduated with a rather impressive class that included peers like uh, General McClellan, George Pickett, and Stonewall Jackson. These are all pretty familiar names. They were icons of the Civil War. But Oaks ended up on a dusty frontier fort. What happened? Well, it is an impressive class. First of all, there's 22 guys all together who get, are going to be generals during the Civil War on either side. So, it, so it, it is quite a class. Yes, and a lot of that had to do, too, with the fact that they had that early military experience with the, the Mexican War. Mm-hmm. That they came right out of school and went right into it. Oaks, he doesn't wind up fighting much during the Civil War. That's true. And it's a little hard to tell why it may have been because of his health. He also is becomes a brevet brigadier general at the end of the war, too, as probably a recognition for his service. Mm-hmm. He stays in the Army, though, and he's transferred to several posts along the west, out in the West, including Hayes. Not really quite sure how much fighting he actually saw at that time. He was commanding the forts. So you're saying instead of a sort of instead of an Indian campaigner, he may have been a very, a more effective administrator. It sounds like he's more of an administrator than he is really a campaigner. Although he had that early service, that he may have had a much bigger career if it wasn't for those that that wound. Mm-hmm. We don't know for sure. But he had it was really kind of a respectable career. He, he retired in 1879, I believe it was. Did he retire in Kansas? Uh, he did not retire in Kansas. He had had enough of it? He, he, he had been transferred somewhere else. I can't think where offhand, but he had at least one more posting after Hayes. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, and he wound up spending the rest of his life in Washington, D.C. He, he lived till 1910, so he had a pretty good career from 1846 to 1879, and then a good retirement as well. I mean, if you look at it, he's, he went to West Point. He was a uh, you know successful military man, ends up in Washington, D.C. Any idea if he came from a prominent family? Because it kind of looks like he's on the course to become, you know, kind of the politician of his time. He may have. I'm not quite sure about his full background. Certainly, for most people getting into West Point at that time, you probably did come from family that had some sort of political influence to mm-hmm. get the... Uh, the appointment to West Point. Of course, he still had to pass the exams to get in, but uh, he had no problem with that. So he is buried in Arlington, he was, which is not a small feat. Even. Yeah. <laughs> what does the uniform tell us about Colonel Oaks? I mean, it, it, there's a couple things you can assess just by looking at it. It looks like he was a pretty slender man, even for you know, at that a, at a midpoint in his life, he's at Fort Hayes. He's pretty skinny. Um, is there any marks or insignia on the uniform? Well, the main one is probably the shoulder boards, which indicates that he is Colonel of the Six, not the Six Kansas, the Six U.S. Cavalry, mm-hmm. uh, which is where what he commanded when he was at Hayes. 
Uh, it is a formal jacket. It's a dress jacket. So it would have, would have the cording on there, which is draped over the front of his the front of his jacket. So he wasn't just wearing it while he was drinking tea. No, the, uh, it, it was more more of a formal. <laughs> it's an interesting coat because it has the maker's tag of a tailor in Washington. Oh yeah, named uh, Samuel Owen, who actually was an English immigrant that came to this country before the Civil War. His shop in Washington was apparently one frequented by Army officers, and he really specialized in that. This would have been perfect for uh, Owen or Oaks to get the coat because it's the dress jacket that's prescribed by Army regulations mm-hmm. throughout the 1870s. But what's interesting, though, is this was a tailor-made jacket, right? This yes. isn't your standard military it's, issue. No, it's, yeah, it's, I guess when it you're fits a, all the regulations, but it's... <laughs> when you're a West Point grad, Civil War general, and uh, post commander, I guess you can... Which may say a little bit about his standing, too. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can get, you can get stuff made. Yes. By the end of the Civil War, Oakes had achieved the rank of Brevet Brigadier General. However, just a few years later, he is referred to as Colonel while he's at Fort Hayes. Um, did he do this because the Colonel's jacket is less uh, decorated and easier to clean? I mean, what, what, what happened? How, he went from General to Colonel. <laughs> That's the wrong direction. It's, it's not unusual for the Army in those days, or the old Army, as they say. Uh, this happened to a lot of people at the end of the Civil War. It even happened to General Custer, who was a brevet general as well. But he's reduced after the Civil War back to colonel, which it's probably a little unfair to say reduced because of the way the promotion system worked back then. Mm-hmm. That term brevet is, uh, needs a little explaining in that it, what it actually means. It's a, it's a temporary rank. gives you status, but not necessarily more pay. In fact, you're still getting paid for being a colonel is what it amounts to. Uh, so he got promoted to general, but he gets paid as a colonel. Colonel, yes. What a ripoff. Yes, it would be like if we had the system here, if we made you a brevet curator. <laughs> and paid me as a paid me assistant, assistant curator. curator. Yes, that's it exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Blair, thanks for telling us about Colonel Oaks and his jacket. You're quite welcome. Because I speak of the pompatists of love. Today's Kansas quiz is Civil War related. Since we touched on the war with Colonel Oaks, we thought it might be appropriate. And this is, after all, the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. At the beginning of the war, there was an organization of Kansas men known as the Frontier Guard. Who organized them and what did they do? to make a list of your favorite Kansas personalities, who would they be? Well, to commemorate the state's 150th anniversary, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback tasked a blue ribbon panel of history brainiacs to come up with 25 notable Kansans. Today, we go behind the scenes with panel chairman Bob Kekeisen, to discuss plans for these notable Kansans and find out 
just why we love these lists so much. What an exciting, proud day to be a Kansan, huh? This is a fabulous day, and we're going to recognize today the Kansans that we've given to the world. Uh, morning, Bob. So Good morning, Merle. We just heard Governor Brownback speaking at the Kansas Historical Society event on August 18th. Um, he seemed pretty excited. What exactly was he so excited about? What was he doing here? Well, as part of the state's sesquicentennial celebration, which we've mentioned you know, in, in a uh, number of podcasts, um, the governor had the idea to identify uh, notable Kansans. He approached us about this uh, early on in his administration, one of the first mm-hmm. things he did. Um, and he uh, said he's really uh, excited about Kansas history, uh, and he knows Kansas history. He's, he does. Yeah, he's... he's um, he can kind of rattle it off while yeah. he's just standing there. Yeah, very excited about history, big supporter of history. Uh, so he approached us and said, you know, in, in order to instill pride in Kansans, um, to get people to think more positively about Kansas and, and to really be proud of Kansas. One of the projects he would like us to help with was to identify the top 25 notable Kansans. And on August 18th, he introduced the first five. First right? five, yeah. We, uh, we have uh, identified uh, 25 notable Kansans, and they'll be announced over a five-week period uh, we did the first one on August 18th, and they will lead up to the final announcement in mid-September. And we're doing five at a time. So yesterday, um, we announced the first five in an alphabetical order. Um, they are uh, Arthur Capper, Senator, Senator from Kansas, okay. um, Charles Curtis, who Vice, was President Vice President of the United States at Hoover, one time, Herbert Hoover, and he was a Native American. Native American. Uh, the only vice president. Of or he was of Native American ancestry. Descent, yeah. Uh, Carl Menninger, noted uh, psychiatrist. Uh, Helped many a vet yeah. um, with post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. dis- stress disorder. Exactly. Uh, the Kiowa chief, Satanta, uh, known as the Order of the Plains. Uh, he was uh, a signatory to the 1867 Medicine Lodge Peace Treaty. Um, and our final one was Charles Sheldon who was the author of In His Steps, or What Would Jesus Do? Right. He coined the phrase, What Would Jesus Do? Yeah, back in the 1890s, and it got revived in the 1990s. The 25 notable Kansans were selected by a blue-ribbon panel of Kansas historians. Um, and he, the governor actually had a few things to say about the, about the panel. A panel of experts that's listed in your program of historians that took great pride in this process, and they they had a lengthy process and discussion to be able to pick the top 25 Kansans. I know we have some of that panel here today. If you're here, could you raise your hand up? Three. All right, three, so if you disagree, let's see now. Bob, what is a blue ribbon panel, and did the panel actually rank the notables? Like, so what is a blue, why is it called a blue ribbon panel? Well, a blue ribbon panel, um, is uh, basically an informal term for a group of experts or knowledgeable people who are appointed to study a given topic. I was sort of disappointed because I expected we would all get blue ribbons. Like where a club that, or yeah, something. Yeah, a club, right, yeah, but that didn't happen. Uh, blue ribbon panels are sometimes called blue ribbon commissions or often government appointed, which this one was. You know, the governor appointed this one. And they're basically to study a particular topic, a particular issue, and then put out a report or a finding or a recommendation. 
good example of a well-known Blue Ribbon Commission uh, is the Warren Commission report. That to investigate the death of President Kennedy. The Kennedy assassination, yeah. That was a essentially a Blue Ribbon panel. But more specifically, oh. any idea why Blue Ribbon is the term? I don't was know. Was there a Blue Ribbon issue? Did George Washington pin a Blue Ribbon to someone and say, go look into go this? Go look into that. I don't, that, would be, that would be interesting. If I, that uh, I don't Can know. you be a Red but, Ribbon yeah. panel member? Oh, you ask about the ranking. Yeah. Did, did we rank them? No. <laughs> In a word. Uh, it was hard enough to get 11 historians to agree on the 25 people, uh, let alone rank them. And, and these are uh, Kansas historians Kansas from historians, throughout the state. Yeah, across the state. Uh, and it was, um, yeah, like I said, it was. It's a lot more arduous than I thought it was. Can you be. can you give us a little insight into what 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 it was like being in the room with these mm-hmm. people debating this? I, and I like and I asked because you mentioned there was use of Velcro and some name <laughs> tags. Yeah, we decided to uh, sort of go uh, game show on this, go to Vanna White, uh, and we made up. Um, cards with everybody's name on them with Velcro on the back and then had a cloth board up at the front of the room and we literally moved names around as people, you know, we, we would have all the names over here and we move them on to our, you know, sort of, uh, okay, these are people are definite, these people are sort of on the fence, these people we've decided no. And then so somebody like would, a reject pile. Yeah, and then somebody would say, well, you know, really, if you're going to talk about actual impact on the state's history and then we'd move a name over and discuss it for a while... The list is confidential. Yes, it's and that's why I have top secret. Yeah, that's why I haven't mentioned, you know, some people that might have been considered that aren't on because if I tell you who's not on the list, you go, ah, you're going to be able to narrow it down. So. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. Uh, right now, we only know of uh, five names that mm-hmm. were released on August 18th, but the governor and the Blue Ribbon panel know the other 20. Uh, when will we learn about the remaining notables? Well, we're going to roll this out over a five week period. So on August 25th, we will be at the Shawnee Indian Mission State Historic Site in Fairway, Kansas, which is over in Kansas City, and we'll do the, the next five there. Then the next week on August 30th, we'll be down at the Fort Scott uh, National Park mm-hmm. site, where we'll do five more. Then on September 7th, we're going to Wichita, and we will be at the Kansas Aviation Museum nice. and do the, the next five. And then the final five will be on September 15th, which is the Governor's Day at the State Fair in mm-hmm. Hutchinson, and those will be the last five. Neat. That'll be a cool event. Um, at each event, not only can one learn about the notable Kansan, but you may also get to see artifacts associated That's with correct. them. Uh, Bob, what artifacts have we seen, and what might we see in the future? Well, at the initial unveiling uh, for Arthur Capper, senator from Kansas, he is also one of the notable Kansans who's sculpture is included in the state capitol. Mm-hmm. So he's in one of the niches in the second floor of the rotunda. So we have the study model from the artist. So we had the model of Capper, and we also have his nameplate from his desk in the United States Senate, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. Uh, for Charles Curtis, we had a campaign license plate, uh, and some campaigns said Hoover Curtis, and some Curtis campaign buttons from the 1928 campaign for uh, president and vice president. Uh, we had Carl Menninger's um, fedora and his eyeglasses, mm-hmm. so his hat and glasses. That was kind of cool. Um, for Satanta, we unfortunately have nothing uh, three-dimensional related specifically to Satanta. Uh-huh. So we had a, uh, but we do have several photographs of him in the collection. So we had a couple of photographs of Satanta, and for Charles Sheldon, we had a signed copy of In His Steps. Yeah, I thought that you was know. pretty neat to see that actual book. Yeah. So, and artifacts that you might see. 
I can't really talk about Come because on. that oh, would my. give away the names, but I can say there will be some more campaign buttons, but not going right, to say what right. year. Uh, there will be some dinnerware. Uh, that might be a clue to some people. There is. Uh, there will be a tool that also can be used as a weapon, uh, and there will be some paperweights that may be more than paperweights, and all sorts of neat stuff. So there's so some, little some interesting out there. clues. Because I'm a picker, I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. This is Blair Tarot, I'm back with the answer to the Kansas quiz, or the answers rather. The Frontier Guard was organized by everybody's favorite U.S. Senator from Kansas and pioneer of unique hairstyles, Jim Lane. Originally, this group of Kansas men was to act as a bodyguard for President Lincoln, at least, or the President-elect, I should say, as he passed through Maryland on his way to Washington for the inauguration. But Lincoln declined the offer, but... The guard stayed in Washington anyway. Uh, when Fort Sumter was fired upon in April of 1861, the lack of an army presence in Washington led to the Frontier Guard to be called into action. For several weeks, they camped out in the East Room of the White House, guarding Lincoln. When more army troops finally arrived in Washington, the Frontier Guard was discharged from its duty, and those Kansas men went back to whatever politics they were up to in Washington at the time. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and Museum Intern Ashley Sherritt. Hello. Today we connect William Allen White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Hindenburg, the German blimp, and uh, one of the largest flying machines ever constructed. Uh, Ashley, you want to give us a little background on the Hindenburg, sure. the blimp, not not the man. Yeah, I can do that. The LZ-129 Hindenburg was a German commercial rigid airship, or blimp. Launched in 1936, the ship was manufactured by the Zeppelin Company and was comprised of a Duralumin superstructure. Nice! <laughs> you got it! <laughs> Cotton skin and goat intestine gas bags filled with hydrogen. Wow. Can you imagine how many goats <laughs> goat had to die for that? Oh, poor yes. goats. Poor goats. Named for the president, German Paul von Hindenburg, the ship was the largest in its class. At just over 800 feet in length, the Hindenburg measured roughly half the height of the Empire State Building. So if it had been placed vertically and mm -hmm. placed to the New York skyline... You could probably see the Hindenburg wow. peeking up. That would it's be pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> the blimp carried a 90-passenger cabin and featured a giant Nazi swastika on the tail. Fence. That's not cool. Not no. Cool. <laughs> Count Ferdinand Zeppelin pioneered rigid airships, and during World War One, their use as bombers and scouts altered modern warfare. By the 1930s, Zeppelins were seen as the transportation of the future until das disaster struck on May 6, 1937. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Arriving in Lakehurst, New Jersey, the Hindenburg caught fire, and within 34 seconds, the gas-filled dirigible was a smoldering pile. I like the thought that, that the Hindenburg was supposed to be the transportation of the future, 
because it was slower than an airplane. And they knew it was slower than an airplane, so why? Because it was made of goat intestine oh, gas bags. Okay. And it looked cool, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right, thanks, Ashley. Now to the game. As contestant, Ashley, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and the Hindenburg. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Uh, Nikayla, you want to go first? Sure. I have to say, this was hard. This was, was hard. really hard. And finally, I just settled for an answer I'm really not proud of. So here it is. Uh, the trip during which the Hindenburg crashed was not the airship's first. It actually made 17 trips across the Atlantic in 1936 alone and frequently carried famous passengers. In June of 1936, the boxer Max Schmeling, who was German, took the Hindenburg back to Germany after defeating Joe Lewis in one of the most touted boxing matches in history. So you had a German versus an African-American. Right. So both, both the blimp and the German boxer were kind of propaganda tools of the exactly. Nazis as well. Yeah, even though Schmeling didn't really want to be. No. So. Okay, Schmeling had a storied career as a boxer. He fought and, and won against some of the most famous names in the sport. And he was inspired to go into boxing by a fight he saw between two of the sport's greats, Jack Dempsey and Georges Carpentier, which happened in 1921. Ooh, was that guy French? He was French, yeah. So an American versus a Frenchman. The fight was one of the most publicized and highly anticipated fights of its day. It even attracted the attention of playwright George Bernard Shaw, who proclaimed Carpentier the greatest boxer in the world. Well, he was wrong. Dempsey won in a knockout in the fourth round, and Carpentier never fought again for the heavyweight title. So that shows you what a playwright knows about boxing. Mm -hmm. Stick to playwriting. And as we know, George Bernard Shaw was a founding member of the Fabian Society, which was a socialist organization in England. And another member of that was H.G. Wells, who was a friend of William Allen White's. Right. H.G. Wells, who wrote sci-fi classics like exactly. The Time Machine. Yep. All right. Nicely done. Uh, now for mine. Among the Hindenburg crew was a man named Harold G. Dick, an American engineer that worked for the Zeppelin Company. He was kind of on loan from Goodyear. Dick escorted the Hindenburg during almost all of its flights. He regularly flew on board, uh, with the exception of the final flight. Uh, he just happened to be called to London at that point. After the Hindenburg disaster, Dick moved to Wichita, Kansas, where he accepted an executive position with Boeing. Um, he was kind of an internationally connected aviation expert. Uh, perhaps eyeing potential defense contracts, Dick lobbied to join the Committee to Defend America by aiding the Allies which advocated the assistance of European allies battling Germany during World War II. So if you can imagine, there was a group of people uh, that wanted the U.S. to become involved in World War II, and a lot of people did not. Dick served on this committee, and he probably do it, did it because Boeing was kind of pushing him to encourage involvement in the war because then they would sell more stuff. Um, that particular committee just happened to be chaired by none other than our William Allen White, who was appointed to the committee by Franklin Del Delano Roosevelt. Hmm. So that's my six degrees of William Allen White. Good luck, Ashley. All right, Ashley. <laughs> this is a really hard one. <laughs> I'm glad it's a 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> I might have to go with Merle's. It sounds pretty... Plausible. Um, actually, mine is the fake. Dang it. Yeah, that's but it all right. Did, it did sound plausible. When I read that, I was like, that could be. Right. Like, that Harold G. Dick was a real guy. 
Right. He did exactly what you said up to the point of moving to Wichita, Kansas. Right. So what I was, was what was kind of disappointing about this was I expected the Hindenburg to have a whole bunch of celebrities that had rode mm-hmm. either died in the disaster or had rode um, some rode the Hindenburg at some point. But there really wasn't that many celebrities. Mm-mm. Schmeling was like the only famous person that ever seemed to have ridden the Hindenburg. Yeah. yeah. So probably it probably was because there was not a lot of people traveling to Germany in that particular time <laughs> yeah, period. Who would want to? With yeah. a blimp that's got a giant swastika <laughs> yeah. on it. All right. Uh, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? I would. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to Microsoft. Established in 1975 by two goofy nerds, Microsoft grew into one of the most powerful corporations of the late 20th century. So come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to Microsoft. Never exactly a techie did even White grow to hate the much blind Microsoft Office assistant named Clippy. Oh, he would have. Oh, I think so. <laughs> That concludes episode 140, Blue Jacket. If you would like to see images of Major Oak's jacket or photographs of notable Kansans and the artifacts they used, go to kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository. Please help us make a better podcast by posting comments on iTunes or Facebook. Come back in two weeks when curator Laurel Fritsch tells us about tools and signs used at an ice cream factory. For almost 100 years, the Scott brothers of Topeka, Kansas, pioneered ice harvesting, ice cream sculptures, and snacks on a stick technology. Find out just how cold the ice cream business can get. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Someone out there will